So you got into this business to be a creative, to get paid to be creative. You got into this business because you have stories to tell. Maybe you got into this business because you have characters that you want to embody. Maybe you got into this business because you have an eye for capturing things. And uh, maybe you just got into this business because you like to make things. Uh, and by this business, I'm talking about the film business. I'm talking about the commercial business. I'm, I'm talking about photography. I'm talking about any of these trades that we uh, fall back on or rely on or, or grow into or grow up studying uh, that we're obsessed with, right? I'm obsessed with directing. I'm obsessed with creation. I love it. it, I, it I get a high from it. I get a sense of accomplishment, a sense of purpose, a sense of definition. Maybe too much so, according to my therapist, but uh, I, it's what I've been put on this, this planet to do. I believe that wholeheartedly, and I've, I've done quite a few things in my life for jobs, and I think the thing that I've done best, the, the place that I've shined is as a director and it is creating content. Um, and a big hurdle, a big issue, a big fear, a big anxiety that all of us have, whether you're just getting into the business, maybe your early 20s, or maybe you're uh, still kicking and you're about to push 50 uh, or 80, if you're Clint Eastwood, 90, if you're Clint Eastwood, right? How old is he now? Like 87 or something? Um, all of us have the same fear. We all have the same issue, right? I just finished a job. I don't have another job. How do I get hired again? How do I survive? Rent's on the way. What do I do? This is a theme that runs underneath everything that we talk about on this show, right? And I've always promised this. From episode one, I promised that we would talk about how I survive, give you tips on how to survive, let you know that in an uneven world, in a world in which there is no formula, no format, to do this correctly, um, how do we make it? What do we do? Uh, and so today I'm excited because I wanted to talk a bit about working for uh, corporate companies, working for commercial clients, working for brands as a director, as a creative. Um, and uh, I'm going to pull in some of my past experience with this. I'm going to reach back in time and talk about one of my all-time favorite commercial jobs that I've done. Um, and uh, I've worked with a bunch of really great clients, really great companies out there. So you other companies that listen to the show, I don't want you to be butthurt about this. It's okay. We're all friends. I love you guys too. But at the end of the day, the work I did with this company, and specifically with the two guests that are on the show today is some of the best stuff that I've done as a director, as a commercial director, and some of the best stuff that I've done as a cinematographer, as a shooter, and some of the best stuff that I've done as a collaborator, and somebody that worked with such an amazing team of folks that were on the show. And I want to thank all of the people that were there on the shoot days with me for these, jo for these jobs, um, and we'll get to them in a minute. Uh, but uh, if you haven't guessed it yet, you're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. Hi, how are you? How's life? What's happening? A lot of great stuff going on. A lot of fun stuff that I want to talk about. Um, 
Big shout out to all of you who listened to last week's episode. I've been getting a lot of really great notes from everybody. Uh, a lot of folks that are giving me uh, messages of encouragement and uh, continuing to push on with uh, the understanding that whatever I gave you guys in that last episode was very cryptic. But um, yeah, there's a big changes that are happening here on my camp. There's big things that are that are that are shifting. Uh, priorities are shifting and projects are shifting. And uh, I'm very excited uh, to tell you guys about what's happening. But before we do so, I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about our guest today. Today, I'm joined by uh, executive producer from Bose, uh, Nicole Hines. Uh, I've known Nicole for years at this point. Nicole hired me. She was the one that uh, picked me out of a lineup of criminals. No, picked me out of a lineup of directors um, to go and uh, direct and help develop the Bose Better Sound Sessions, um, which were these uh, live sound recording sessions done at one of the top secret studios at Bose. And uh, they brought me in to film these things to create uh, long-form comment, short, long-form content, short-form content uh, to basically make music video-esque live pieces. Um, and uh, also joining us on the show is uh, the sound engineer from Bose, uh, one of the most important aspects of that venture, recording great sound, recording great music for the Bose Better Sound Sessions. My buddy over there, uh, Fran Flannery. Uh, Flan, uh, Fran, geez, this is the first time I, oh, yeah, full transparency. I love, I love being transparent. Uh, uh, I talked to Fran. I've known Fran for years. I've never used his last name. And he's like, it's Flannery. And I'm like, so your name is Fran Flannery. I'm going to have so much trouble saying that on the show. <laughs> and I just screwed it up. <laughs> I love you, Fran. Uh, but friends on the show, he is the sound engineer at Bose. Um, he has done a bunch of their live stuff. He did all the Bose Better Sound Session stuff. He also records stuff that goes into the in-store demos. He's on the cutting edge recording binaural stuff and, and getting into 3D sound technology. All that stuff is fucking really cool. Um, and uh, Fran is a sweetheart. He's one of the hardest working dudes. He was there sweating bullets with me. He was like the last guy out of the studio laying out mics, so incredibly talented. And Fran gets into his history, his his uh, life before Bose and working with some amazing music acts and uh, being a musician himself and working his way into a career as a sound engineer. So um, strap yourselves in, man. This is going to be uh, a pretty intense episode that tackles a lot of the questions that many of you that follow me on Instagram, at Mike Petchy on Instagram, or the podcast on Instagram at a love of the process pod pod on Instagram. Um, you guys have seen my posts because lately I posted, I think about a month or change ago, I just started nostalgically posting about the Bose better sound session stuff. And I got a lot of questions like, how'd you guys shoot it? What did you shoot it on? That stupid question that everybody asked, what do you shoot it on? But also these are beautiful. What did you do? How did you make this work? And when you look at this from the outside, you look at the Better Sound Session stuff and you go, it's really pretty. They must have just set up a couple cameras, maybe did some lighting. It was such a technical Rubik's Cube to be able to make this work. And I'm going to walk you through it on the show with these two, our guests today. Um, and we're going to get deep into it on like what it's like to solve a puzzle. Because that's what it was. It was a puzzle. 
How do you create content that is suiting the client, that is uh, doing what they need, but also pushing the limits of that format and formula? There are plenty of companies out there that were doing live sound session recordings. How do we make it look different? How do we make it feel original? And how do I do stuff that rises to the caliber of a brand like Bose? Um, so it's a, it's a great breakdown. For those of you who want to be commercial directors, for those of you, hell, that are commercial directors, and you guys are trying to get a better grasp on how to get commercial clients, and instead of spending money on these things that you see on Instagram or on your feed, while like, you want commercial clients? I'll tell you how to get them. The person that's telling you how to get a commercial client is someone that is also trying to figure out how to get commercial clients. On today's episode, we talked to the source, to the woman that hires people like you and me. She gives, gives us insight on what they look for. And if you pay close attention, maybe write some notes as you strategize your business plan and put together your path as a director, uh, I'm going to try to give you some info from the source that I know is true because I've gone through it and I've seen it and I've adjusted my stuff based upon it as well. Okay. I'm not saying it's going to work for you hundred percent, but just know it's it's coming from a truer source than a lot of these. Want to get clients online? Just sign up for $500 and we'll teach you how to get clients online, says the guy who's not working right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's me getting bitter about that shit again. Um, so yeah, but uh, before we get into it, like I said, big shout out to everybody that's been following me on Instagram. A big thank you to everybody uh, that supported me on the last show. Um, here's the exciting news. And I'm not going to fully release everything right now, but the exciting news is this. I am about to start shooting a brand new proof of concept short film. And I'm about to do one that is going to be at the level in the scale of 12KM. So those of you who have seen 12KM, you guys have seen that project, you know what I'm talking about. I'm very excited. I have a script from Will Simmons that I love. Um, I've got a great team of folks circling around me and supporting me on this. Our buddy Tanner supporting us on this. Um, working on putting together the right cast, the right crew. It's going to be a mix of folks that we know that have worked on my stuff and a whole lot of new people because I'm going to attempt, we'll see, I'm going to attempt to make it work out here in Los Angeles. So the exciting thing is that I'm about to jump deep and dive deep into this project, hopefully shoot it this summer. So that's where we're aiming, most likely going to. Um, and so what does this mean for the show? What does this mean for the podcast? Well, Mike's going to be busy, but I'm going to make sure that I release episodes every week, like I promised. And I'm going to try to stack up a bunch of episodes with guests and my cue so that you guys continue to listen to the show without feeling like it's interrupted. Um, but I'm also going to offer stuff to you guys. So when I initially did, and I haven't worked out the details, so so take all this with a grain of salt, but this is what my initial plan is. When I did 12KM, I did a Kickstarter thing. I want to skip past all that bullshit. I want to skip past the fees. I want to skip past all the stuff that takes the money out of the production, right? And so what, what I'm thinking about doing to raise some money to help with this project, and more importantly, there are so many of you that listen to the show that want to be a part of this project. I get comments and emails and, and suggestions 
written to me all the time on like, hey, how can we be involved and what can we do? And we really want to learn how to do this stuff. I'm thinking about taking what I did for Kickstarter and I'm thinking about taking my director's inner circle and bringing it to you guys. And I'm considering doing a special podcast once a week called the director's inner circle on this project. It'll be a private podcast. It'll be a podcast that you can pay to get access to. Excuse me. <coughs> As I cough that you could pay to get access to, but it's also going to give you the inside track on what it is that I'm doing with this film, how I'm making this film happen, who I'm working with on this film. There's all sorts of stuff. Are you guys into this? Are you ladies listening to the show into this? Do you want to be a part of the director's inner circle? And it's a great way to help contribute to the next project, to the movie, to feel like you're involved with the movie. I'm going to work out the details. Details. Jesus, Michael. I'm going to work out the details uh, over the next week or two. And I'll put all that stuff together. But I wanted to tease you guys. I want to drop it out there that, yes, I'm doing something new. Yes, it's exciting. Yes, it's uh, uh, a piece that is written by Will. It's a piece that him and I are excited about doing, and it's a brand new idea, brand new concept, brand new proof of concept. Um, are you excited? Because I am. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I just did some sketches last night. I did some like character design sketches. I'm going to do more work through the weekend. Uh, I'm, I'm getting there, man. It's going to be fun. It's been too long. I've been uh, you know, fat bear in COVID hibernation for like, what, two and a half years at this point? I'm ready to get the fuck out. Right? I'm ready to get out there and start shooting something new. So, very excited. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to today's episode. You know the deal. Strap on those Bose noise canceling headphones if you have those. And if Bose, if you're listening, then we should make this a normal thing and a regular thing. Maybe you should sponsor the show. You know, wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> strap on those noise canceling headphones. Sit back, relax, grab something to write some shit down because you guys are going to learn something new on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Nicole, Fran, thanks for being on the show. How are you guys? Great. Great. Thanks for having us. I feel yeah. this is very nostalgic for me. I feel like I haven't seen you guys in too long, and it's the East Coast coming over here to the West Coast, at least through the internet. Um, so I'm, I'm pumped to be hanging out again. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so what's going on there? Is it is it freezing still? Is the is the sun coming out? How's how's the weather out there? It's a classic New England day in April where it's raining, then it's sunny, then it's raining, and then it's windy, and then it's sunny. So um yeah, pretty typical for, for this time of year up here. <laughs> yeah. Around this time where we just we keep waiting for spring to start, we get hopeful and then it's like ah oh. Hasn't really begun yet. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I remember specifically what yep. that's like. We have uh, different problems here. It's more of a, uh, hey, and this is going to sound like such such an asshole thing to say, but hey, it's uh, 65 degrees and now it's 100 degrees. And now it's 65 degrees and now yeah. it's 100 degrees. So it's, it's a little bit different out here. Um, it's warmer, right? Yeah, I, I remember those days. Yeah, that's – it's – <laughs> it's global warming for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yesterday, I think Gina and I went out yesterday and I felt like I was going to melt on the sidewalk like a candy bar. It was like, oh my God, it's so fucking hot out here. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're not quite there yet. We're not there no. yet. <laughs> no, I have a hard time with the heat too, Mike, but it's like, you know, you get so hardy being out here in Massachusetts where you, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's 30 degrees out and I just go out with a sweatshirt, you know, just no hat. And, you know, it doesn't bother us anymore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The kids go out in shorts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I think my kids wear shorts to school, you know, almost every day. Uh, yeah. I've still got that blood, guys. I, I mean, I still have the face sweater mm. that I carry with me all the time. So when it got to 100 <laughs> degrees, I was like, I'm melting. I'm melting out here. Um Mm -hmm. So I wanted to catch up with you guys on the show because um, I've had a lot of folks writing to me uh, through Instagram and stuff and asking about, you know, the work that we did, the the better, the Bose Better Sound Session stuff. And I have people asking, like, how we technically pulled it off. I have people that uh, are just like, wow, I, I didn't realize you guys did this. So uh, I wanted to get uh, uh, two of the key ingredients to that production on the show and, and uh, maybe shed some light into how we made something really beautiful uh, in the restrictions that we had, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite topics. I love talking about it. <laughs> well, let me get started. Let's do a little history first, and I'm just going to go back and forth between the two of you. Um, uh, Nicole, so actually, what would you describe your job is at Bose? Like, what, what is your technical sure. job position? Sure. So I am an executive producer at Bose in our uh, creative department. So we have an internal creative team um, that works on all of our marketing, uh, demonstration, media content. And um, I'm responsible for bringing in agencies and directors and photographers and all sorts of fun people to help us bring our ideas to life. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I remember I pitched to you. I remember coming in and, and meeting with Several you. Several times, yeah. Yeah, man. <laughs> well, why why producing? Like, what got you into producing? Uh, so, I, I've always been in into more of the creative arts side. My family 
comes from a science and technical side. So I was a little bit of the black sheep. Um, <laughs> I did a lot of theater in high school and, um, I wanted, when I was looking at colleges, knew I wanted to do something in film. Uh, I am a child of the eighties and in the early nineties, when mm-hmm. I was looking at colleges, it was the heyday of independent film. And I was gobsmacked by the likes of Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and all those, um, fun people in the indie scene back in the day. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I went to Emerson college in Boston and a uh, proud member of the Emerson Mafia and uh, <laughs> and uh, got my degree in film. But I, I worked a lot in um, the TV and video side of, of all the clubs and, and, you know, little side projects and gigs that you do with all your friends. Um, it, the format was so much easier to work with than film. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think maybe I had like a premonition at the time of, you know, where the industry was going. We had the biggest Media 100 editing lab on the East Coast. So <laughs> RIP Media 100. I but, remember. Um, I remember it. <laughs> remember that? Yeah. So I was a lab manager in our in our editing lab. So I would just go and tool around when the when all the other kids are out clubbing and going to like all the you know nightlife out in Boston. I was in the lab editing. So I, I was, I'm a nerd from the start. <laughs> and uh, I just love doing it all. Like I, I got into producing really in college and it was funny. It's one of my film professors. I had a really bad experience that I, I did not like him at all. He was very like snobby about film and being a director and all uh, that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, he he would you would divide up into groups and someone would be a director and someone would be a DP and someone would be audio and someone would be editor. And I said I don't want to be any of those. I want to be the producer. And he like went off and was like, "Producers, they don't do anything. They're not helpful, whatever." Ugh. And I said, "I'm going to show you. I'm going to be a producer, and I'm going to be the editor, and <laughs> I'm going to like prove you wrong." So that really kind of like that's kind of a defining moment. Like you run into a person like that, and you're like, "I'm going to show you," <laughs> and it kind of like puts you on a trajectory. So, um, so yeah, I, I graduated in 2000 and moved to LA. Like everyone and um started working as a pa and you know used my emerson network to you know get my next gig and then yep after a year of kind of freelancing and doing the pa thing i found myself in an independent film company and i was hired as the assistant to the producer cool. and uh ended up um associate producing my first film with him that we brought to sundance and was bought by Lionsgate. It's a film called Wise Girls. You can still catch it on Cinemax to this day. Nice, <laughs> nice. Sorry, Mira Savino and Laura Walter. So yeah, to keep an eye out for it. It's it's not it's not terrific, but it was as a twenty one year old in LA. It was yeah, like amazing. Yeah. Well, was I mean, amazing you, time. And you get to go to Sundance and, yeah. and and in the peak of like yeah. you said, Rodriguez and like Kevin Smith. I yeah. mean, that was the hot spot to go there and do that stuff. Yeah. This was like the heyday. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's still pretty prevalent, but it was like, this was like the scene, right? So yeah. uh, I got out of that and got into um, reality television. Oof. Uh, Oof. And uh, I started, you know, kind of low level, like PA runner, logger, you know, just whatever odd jobs I could pick up. And eventually found myself in the story department uh-huh. and uh, worked on um, a really great show that only ran for one season on ABC called Brat Camp uh, and really started to hone my storytelling skills in that role. 
And um, that that really sent me on like a new trajectory of like, you know, this idea of storytelling and, you know, how you can not just be a producer, but you can be a writer and you can be an editor all at the same time and like how they all really kind of intersect. And that was interesting to me. So I went on a story path for a while. I worked on Rachel Ray's Tasty Travels. I worked on Big Brother. Cool. And um, and uh, in 1990, no. Not 1990. It would have been into the 2000s, all right, because I graduated 2000. <laughs> Where am I in the timeline of my story? <laughs> in, I guess, 2007, we moved, my husband and I moved back to Massachusetts. He, he got a job opportunity, and our families were on the East Coast, so we wanted to be closer to family. Sure. And um, so we moved back, and I was looking around and ended up getting an interview at Bose. And I distinctly remember in my interview with my manager, who's now our director, uh, our department director, um, she asked me why I wanted to work with Bose. And I bluntly said to her, I'm like, well, to be honest with you, there's not much else in Massachusetts. (laughs) (laughs) Which she laughed at. Yep. And uh, apparently that was enough to know that I'd be a good fit for the department. So (laughs) So I've been at Bose for almost 15 years now and um, started as associate producer and worked my way up to executive producer. And um, now I'm talking to you on this podcast. So there there we go. I love that that's your end. You could have been like, my family's a bunch of science nerds and Bose is the perfect collection of science and nerdery and filmmaking, but you're like, nah, there's no jobs here. There's no jobs here. This is this is it for me. That's great. But it's true. Like, I mean, Bose has a really great brand and a great brand story. And, you know, we can get to that when we talk about better sound sessions. Sure. But it really is like, and I mean, honestly, that's why I've been coming so long, friends of the company so long like so many of us have been is because it is a brand we truly believe in and it really it really is a research company at heart that is trying to make people's lives better yeah through better audio so um you know there's really something nice there that you know really speaks to a lot of people well i mean so a nice transition here is to you fran so um yeah. how did you well first what do you what's your job title at bose I am uh, audio engineer, recording engineer. So uh, anything to do right now with audio and any of our displays, I'm responsible for. Uh, sometimes uh, I'm responsible for online pieces. I even write music sometimes for online pieces. Anytime we have remote recordings, I'm involved. Uh, so kind of like an audio, uh, recording engineer, catch all kind of guy for everybody in the company. Yeah, man. Well, okay. So I've, we've never really chatted about it, but I've heard rumors about the stuff that you used to do before you worked at Bose. You've had a career (laughs) as an audio engineer for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've, you know, uh, I worked for 15 years in the music business, uh, as a recording engineer, uh, before I came to Bose Mm -hmm. and, you know, I graduate, you know, I mean, I got started when I was really young, you know, I started, you know, it all stems from just this passion and love for music Mm. that, you know, that I had since I can remember. And, uh, you know, I started playing guitar when I was seven and I convinced my mom to let me play guitar. Uh, And the only way I could was if I agreed to take lessons from the 
man who played guitar in church. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's funny. that's 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 how I got started, and he was great, and he got me going, and and um, so yeah, and I started writing songs by the time I was in fourth grade, and started a band in fifth grade, and mm-hmm. and uh, you, you know wanted a way to record what we were writing and uh, started trying to figure that out with just cassette decks in the late seventies. And, and, uh, and then eventually, you know, I, I uh, had my paper route job that I saved my money on and I went to (laughs) Wurlitzer music in Worcester, Massachusetts and and bought myself a reel to reel Mm -hmm. TX 3340 tape deck, which allowed me to do four tracks and, I took over my dad's office in the basement. He was a biology teacher <laughs> and I wasn't much interested in biology, at least not in school. Um, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I so, get that. I get the joke. <laughs> <laughs> but uh-huh. we um you know, so I, I set up in his room down there and started writing music and it and it uh I was in the jazz band in high school and I had the whole band in my basement with my dad's office as my control room and i didn't really know what the heck i was doing back then but mm-hmm. you know i got some things done you know and and uh was able to do some some of my own demos and writing demos and then i went and did some recording in a real studio and um caught the buck you know and so it was like oh, okay it's time to go to college what am i gonna do it's like yeah wow there's this program at u lowell uh you know now it's umass lowell mm-hmm. um that was a music performance degree and a uh, recording technology degree all in one. So I went there and studied classical guitar studies and uh, recording. So mm-hmm. uh, when I got out of there, I went and uh, worked for a recording studio uh, as a staff engineer. First, I started as an assistant and did all that for years, you know. And um, yeah, because that's the way in for that, you know, right? You you sort of go in and that kind was of yeah. There was a there was a ladder back then, you know what I mean? I don't know if it really exists that much anymore. Maybe in the cities, you know, maybe if you go to Nashville and some places in LA, you still have that ladder still yeah. exists where you come in and you, you know, you make coffee and you run for, you know, fruit baskets and things like that. And then you, uh, you know, you, you start helping out in the studio and, uh, I was lucky, you know, the first, you know, I was at an internship, which was part of finishing my, degree Mm -hmm. and uh i was there for three weeks and uh, aerosmith came in wow and so i spent three months with them after that and it was it was a writing session it wasn't a really a we were recording all the time but it was uh it was for the album get a grip in 1991 i remember it, and it was great so we um we were able to you know we I hung out with the, with those guys recording like 40 something demos uh along with the other studio crews and they brought their own their live sound guy this guy Tony Lentini came in and he was he was recording them and I was helping him and uh it was great and then you know the full band was there for 3 weeks and then mm-hmm. and then when they left it was just me and Steven and uh it was kind of boring actually i did more gardening that summer i think than recording 
because you know where I where I worked it was it was a great place it was a residential studio you know it was a horse farm residential studio so they lived there uh-huh. clients lived there when they came to record and so uh, part of part of my job back then is I was just waiting around for Steven to say, okay, I, I wrote some things and I want to try them. Let's record. And so, you know, there were some days where we didn't record at all. He would just go for long walks and write lyrics. And but then there were other days we were really busy. But yeah, in between, I was spending a lot of time helping uh, tend to the garden. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it was like on both accounts. It, it sounds like you were tending to Stephen's creative garden at the same time as tending to that garden. Yeah, yeah. You know? No, it was a great. It was a great way to start. And then after that, you don't feel so intimidated because at the time they were probably the biggest huge. rock band in the huge. world. Yeah, huge. I know. I mean, we had to have security all the time, and people were jumping over stone walls to meet him. It was crazy. Oh my god! But yeah, and uh, but it was you know, uh, it was a great. It was a great way to uh, get into it and have something that you could talk about too, uh, you know. So then I worked there, and I, I was lucky enough to work on uh, records, you know, uh, through the years with with people, you know, the Indigo Girls, Living Color, Creed, <laughs> Fuel, uh, Limp Biscuit. I mean, a lot of heavy rock stuff. Uh, as well as other, you know, engineered records for Fuel, Creed, um, and uh, John Schofield. Wow, man. You know, Love Spit Love, uh, you know, uh, geez, I'm, I'm missing a whole bunch of them. But yeah, it was, it's, you know, <laughs> it was it was great because I got to work with record producers who were, who were some of the some of the best and they had been around forever, some of them, you know, and, and, uh, it was so great to see how they did their, their what they did and, and how it how it listened throughout the process. You know how 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 the instruments sounded as they were being recorded by these real incredible professionals, and yeah. and it was a great it was a great way to to know you know like what you know you know how things were going to fit in in the end and what you had to do and. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, a uh, every day was an education and it still is, you well, know, so you were lucky, man. That's, <clears throat> that's a great position to be in because you start to, you start to, to get the skill of seeing the bird's eye view at that point where, you know, I think that a lot of technicians that I've worked with, and I never really got this from you, Fran, when we worked together, but a lot of technicians that I work with sometimes have real extreme tunnel vision and they're a hundred percent focused on like specific tasks and, and like, uh, you know, if I do this correctly and this has to be this right way and they, they create rhythms and, uh, and, and, f- and formulas for themselves in order to, A, to keep themselves sane, but also to do quality control for what it is that they specifically do. And it's rare that you meet a technician that has the ability to have that bird's eye view and to just go, this is the piece of the puzzle that I'm providing. And I, I understand what pieces are missing from this puzzle. So how can I, uh, better make the puzzle come together uh instead of just saying like i'm so focused on my my piece of the puzzle you know what i mean yeah i mean and you know you had to be focused like that occasionally and when you were setting things up and and you know people wanted things to be technically right usually but they you know but that wasn't the important part the important part was 
how it all came together and how it fit and how it sounded. Just like you said, it was, it was, yeah. that was the focus. And that was, you know, to, to be able to see people like, you know, Andy Johns and Ron St. Germain and Nico Bolas, who I learned from, you know, those kind of pr- record producers, uh, you know, in, an invaluable education, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to be able to, to be there with them and see what they do and occasionally, you know, patch something up for them and, and, uh, and then eventually have them trust you enough to, to engineer records for them, you know? And so that's, that's how I came up. And, and then, um, you know, uh, I started, you know, producing local things on my own and, and doing that because it was more lucrative to do that. And, uh, and eventually, you know, I met up with this guy, Steven Ruggieri, who worked for Bose mm-hmm. and, um, he was, you know, running some of the Bose music theater, uh, demonstrations, you know, it used to be, if you went to a Bose store and you went in, there was a room that you could get an incredible demo at, uh, and, uh, he was putting all those together, him and a guy called Bob Petrucci and, and, you know, and his wife actually was one of the cooks at the recording studio. And she kept saying to me, Hey, you have to meet Steven. You know, he's, he's, you know, he'd love to talk to him. Like, yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I can imagine <laughs> me working for the, you know, a company, you yeah, know, it was right, like, I always right. work for a small place and then I was working for myself and, you know, working for the man just seemed like a crazy <laughs> idea, you know, like yeah, something yeah. I never wanted to do, you know, it was like, yep. Yep. For sure. Uh, and then, you know, so I said, all right, you know, cause I, I loved Rita and I was, you know, I said, I'll, I'll meet with your husband. And then, then he started talking about projects and he's like, oh, you got to help me with this thing. And really it's about whatever we want to do. And, and it's about greatness. It's about not having any limits and about doing the best job you possibly can. And you have the total support of the company on this. If you come on board and help out. And so then I started doing contracting work and that was what attracted me. The idea of that, you know, there was no, there was no, uh, limits in a sense to, uh, what we could do to make something great. And that's, you know, when I, when I started on it, Bose for sure, that that's, that was the idea. It was like, let's just do the best damn demo we can possibly do right and really knock people off their socks when they go into the bose music theater so their jaw drops and and they get something that they'll talk about when they leave and they'll and they'll remember you know and and Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. and i think you know we 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 did that for years in the bose music theater and uh you know eventually i came and worked full-time for bose in 2006 after contracting for three years uh, but you know, things were changing in the music business, you know, Napster had happened. There yep. wasn't as much money. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, we used to, you know, we, I used to do first time records for Sony along with other producers and our budgets would be like $350,000 for a first record. And, you know, it, it you know, first records went from that to $35,000, you know? Yeah. So it was like, mm. it just became really difficult to stay in the business and to con- continue to do it. I mean, I was doing it by uh, getting a lot of, by producing local bands and doing that, try to get them to their next level. 
And, uh, and that was all good. But at the same time I started having kids and it's like, gee, maybe, you know, leaving for three to six weeks at a time, like I was doing an awful lot when making records Sure, was really hard on the family and, and God bless the people who can still do it at, you know, over 50 years old, which I am now, but it was like, you know, that's a, that's a lot. And then I started looking at the people who I, you know, all my career wanted to be like, and realize that, you know, they may have their professional lives really together, but their personal lives are kind of a mess. That's you know? a big too. That's a that's a big <laughs> thing across all these careers. <clears throat> you know, whether you're talking yeah. about uh, music stuff or recording or even producing uh, any of it, it's it's tough to to hold on to sort of like that family thing because, uh, I mean, Nicole, you're not traveling as much as you used to, right? But you got you're still on the road a lot when you guys are doing uh, commercials. Yeah. Yeah, we're coming back into it. We started traveling more last year, but not as much as we were pre-pandemic. But yeah, I've got I've got kids and a family too. But I think, you know, like I said, we moved from LA to Massachusetts um, 15 years ago or so. But it, to be close with family, yes. But also at the time, we hadn't had kids yet, but we wanted to have a family. And, you yeah. know, that freelance lifestyle in LA isn't that conducive <laughs> to having <laughs> a young family. So because yeah. like, like on all my shows, like Big Brother is a show that tapes 24 seven, like I would be working in the middle of the night, I'd be working, you know, coming home at all sorts of odd hours yeah. during during that time period. And um, it's hard and it's it's stressful. Like it was great in my twenties when I had the the energy for it, but you know, it, it I knew it wasn't gonna be sustainable. So yeah, yeah, that that was one of the reasons why we moved back uh, to Massachusetts so we could have more stability. And so yeah, I mean, we have our ebbs and flows and like production's still production. It's like you sure. still have, you know, whenever that talent is available is when you're shooting some days. So um, you know, you gotta pick up and go and sometimes you miss a holiday, but it's the the those days are so far and few between compared to the freelance lifestyle like the freelance lifestyle that's more or less every every job is Tell you're me. like making yourself available whenever the client needs you to be available <laughs> yeah. so yeah. you know and having been freelance for so long i do try to be respectful of that um and do you know know even though you know like people like yourself are freelance but like you're allowed a weekend too, <laughs> you know. Like I'm not gonna call you in the middle of the night. Well, you, you know? are you are always I, like, you are always good about that with us. I mean, like, and and you're right. Yeah. I mean, the freelance. I talk about this honestly on the show all the time because there is yeah. there is this Instagram filter out there where everybody goes, "Oh, life is so so amazing. You're gonna be a director. You're gonna be a filmmaker." And it's like whew, you get to pose in Lamborghinis all the time, and everything looks really great. It's like. <laughs> It's like, no, dude, <laughs> like, like you wait around and then you get a call and then your life ends, like instantly ends. Yeah. And you're like, okay, yeah. uh, you know, the only way I've been able to do it at this point is because both Gina and I are in the business. So like the two of yeah. us mm-hmm. completely understand and support each other when it comes to that. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's completely disruptive. And in, in, in the music world, we just had our friend who is uh, uh, April, who's a makeup artist um, she just went on the road. She's touring with, um, oh God, who's the, I'm so terrible at this. Who's the big pop star that just won best pop star of the year for the Grammys? It's uh, uh, Garcia. What the hell? Olivia Rodrigo. Oh, uh, that's her. Yeah. Olivia Rodrigo. Yeah. 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 And, and so she's on tour with her right now doing makeup and it's just insane. Like you, you see yeah. the uprooting that happens 
And uh, she's, I don't know if she's posting to the public, but she's been posting pictures of her on the tour bus and everything that she goes through. And I'm like, I don't think I could do that right now. <laughs> like, like that would be yeah. really difficult to go through that yeah. whole process. Man. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, being on tour, it can be grueling. I mean, you know, if you, you know, those, they got like those five in the morning radio calls to promote their shows and all that kind of stuff. And then they have to <laughs> yeah. go do the show at night. And imagine the makeup artist has to be there for all of it. If there's a camera around. So yeah. Look out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so let's get, I'm going to get into the better sound session stuff and I, let me tackle it from, from, uh, my perspective in. So, uh, when I was back in the city, when I was back in Boston doing this stuff, I was we were constantly as freelancers. Um, and when I was working with Ian, the the two of us started as music video guys. And you brought yeah. up a great point, Fran. That Napster really—I don't think a lot of people realize that the digital revolution of the music industry, the way it happened, really decimated. Um, a lot of the careers and the money that are involved with the the support system around musicians. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just because people aren't buying albums anymore. It was just that simple. People were, I was, people were stealing albums. And so you, yeah. the, the money well, there wasn't was going in, you know? There's a reason for that. I mean, you know, you got to understand the record companies were raking it in all through the 90s with CD sales by re-releasing yeah. all the great music that happened in the 70s and the early 80s and the artists weren't getting the musics the 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 royalties all that much for that stuff either and um so you know things things changed in the 80s in the record business where record producers started making a ton of money because they were getting you know points on records and uh you know, so then there was, you know, the great ones didn't want to move on from that, you know? So it used to be that, you know, you, you'd start in a studio, you'd work your way up, you'd, you'd, you'd get to this high level as a record producer. Yeah. And if you were successful there, you moved on to be a record company executive, you know, this is what happened through the fifties and sixties and seventies. And then in the eighties, you know, record producers started making an insane amount of money with, with, uh, earning or earning points on records. And, uh, so then, then you had suits move into those uh, executive jobs, and they were just interested in you know selling as many CDs as possible, and they did that, and they also charged people twenty dollars a piece I for know, them. So so the industry was ripe for something like Napster to happen, and uh, you know because you know people were spending twenty dollars because they like one song. It wasn't like when I was a kid; I'd go to go to the department store and spend uh you know two dollars on a 45 you know and and and, uh i could get the song that i want and the bonus was what whatever the b-side was you know yeah so uh you know so things you know napster changed things but it it was you know the industry was ready for a napster and for an itunes you know and uh all that kind of stuff that but it did you're right it made extremely hard for musicians to continue to make a living and um well i mean you know, I, and I also could, also the support industries like entire labels yeah. laid off floors and floors of people and then when we got into the music video business we got in i would say probably early 2000s kind of vibe and as yeah. we were walking in we were walking past like the mark roman x and the the the, the dudes that had been doing like the big music videos from the 90s the videos 
that were the reason why we were going to get into the business. It was like, I'm going to have a career yeah. being a music video director. Look at like what Spike Jones is doing. Look at what these guys are doing. And, and we would pass ships with them. And they're like, are you fucking, are you serious? You're going in here to do, <laughs> your budget was what my take was. Like, like that's yeah. what your budget for the whole thing is. And, exactly. and so when we started that, um, we, the, the, the decline happened very rapidly. So you suddenly are going from music video budgets of like maybe, uh, 35,000, 50,000. And they're starting to, especially in the rock world, they're starting to decline completely down to like five grand, 10 grand. And, and you're yeah. at that point going, I can't run a business this way. I mean, I could be a 20 year old that lives in my, my parents' basement with a camera I bought and live this way, but I can't. Yeah. I can't have a business model this way. Yeah. And when we when we met Nicole, that was right around the time because I was mm -hmm. I was also rep by Red Tree and Margie Sullivan. I love Margie. Mm -hmm. And we were Yeah, she's the best. She's the best, man. And and they were trying to figure out how to sell us and sell me. Um, and uh I kept saying bows, 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 bows. Because, you know, <laughs> it was the corporate, it was the corporate equivalent of being able to do uh, music stuff. And I remember when she, I can't remember the specifics, but the better sound session stuff came in. And I think the initial call was, Hey, can we just film with multiple cameras, uh, us recording, uh, this band, uh, laying down a couple tracks, right? Wasn't that what the original call out was for? Something like that. So yeah, we, so it's interesting. This was about, I think 2013 or so, maybe 2014. We had started at least thinking in 2013 about recording live music because aside from the theater show that Fran mentioned, which was to be honest, a completely different group than what I was working in. They were like advanced prototyping demonstration, you know, people, and we were like making marketing materials. Right. So, right, right, right. um, we, we, aside from what, what his group was doing, we weren't really involved in the music conversation, which to a couple of us creatives was like, this is crazy. Like, why aren't we in this conversation? Why aren't we supporting musicians and recording music? Because it comes so much more natural to our brand than it would any other brand like Converse or Levi's that sure. are like hosting these sound recording sessions as part of their, their marketing assets. So we had done, and by this time, I think by 20, 13, 2014, Fran, you were, you were incorporated into our group, right? So yeah, I they think, had merged our two groups together. Yeah, yeah, right. So we were all working together at this point. And um, we, you know, now thinking more holistically about our retail demonstration pieces, like Fran said, there's that history of the theater, the Bose Theater and the retail store. Uh, we're, we, you know, we, we're not, we're, we also have presence in like the best buys of the world. Sure. Um, sure. so there's like little displays. If you ever go into Best Buy or Target, you've seen them and you've probably put on the headphones or press the speaker button. Um, so how do you make that kind of experience into this like open floor format that's going to cut through to this really loud, openest, cavernous space? Yeah. Um, yeah. you don't realize how loud those stores are. And so you take a DB level reading inside and it's like <laughs> as loud as an airplane. So, um, so yeah, like that was the conundrum of like, how do we create this demo content? We didn't have really big budgets for it. So we were like, well, what if we can create 
social content in addition to this demonstration content and kind of like combine the powers of the budgets that we have to make these really cool pieces. Yes. So we did, uh, before we, we got with you, we, we did kind of like a pilot episode in um, Brooklyn. I forget the production company we worked with. It's obviously not important for this story, but uh, <laughs> we recorded a band called Air Traffic Controller yep. in Brooklyn. And we did basically a proof of concept to say like, hey, we could do it. And of course we licensed it and it re- ended up being a really successful demo. The band got a lot of like reaction to it as well by, oh my God, I was in Best Buy. I heard your song. It's so cool. I love it. Yep. We're like, okay, we can do this. This is a, now we, we realize we can, we can record it. We can make the sound exactly how we need it to be to demonstrate our products as perfectly and as we can in these big spaces. And, um, so proactively a bunch of us creatives got together and started concepting what a series of these could look like and where it could live, not just in retail, but in social, yeah. which of course in, you know, you, you forget we've lived with social media for so long, but back in 2013, 2014, it was still pretty new. Yeah. Yeah. We were trying um, to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, so yeah, we pitched it around internally and we got some budget to do a couple of songs with some artists and, um, yeah, we just, that's when we started chatting with you about what we could do. Yeah. Uh, also at that time we had our own studio space in Westboro, Mass. Yeah. And, um, as you know, and I know this is where you want to get to this topic of how small that space was, because um, <laughs> yeah. it was me- it wasn't meant to be a shoot space; it was meant to be a recording space. Sure. We we had a really beautifully designed space by Fran Manzala, and um, you know we we wanted to invite bands there who were either coming through Boston or um, we could fly out to to meet with us and just have them record in our space and just have a good time so yeah yeah so that's kind of how we got it off the ground all right it's time to take a break time to take a minute give some shout outs to the sponsors of the show. And since we've been talking about uh, music and music recording and sound quality, I think it's only fair that we give a shout out to our friends over at Jambox. Jambox Jambox.io. One of the best sponsors that we have on this show right now, because if you sign up for Jambox in the month of April, by the way, Using the code ILWP for whatever thing you, you choose there, um, you'll get 20% off and it's going to change and affect your, <laughs> your work today. Uh, we just turned in a new edit for a project that I can't talk about until June, um, but uh, the client was like, oh my God, this music is so great. Do we have the rights to be able to use this music? And I said, yes, you do. We do. Because of Jambox. Jambox and the subscription service that we have subscribed to, we have all the rights in the world to be able to use this music happily. Um, and Jambox has been super excited because uh, we just did uh, that last piece that Gina shot in Miami with uh, Boohoo Man. 
And uh, that came out fantastic. That was using music from Jambox, a big campaign that went out. And I think, uh, yes, Jambox, I got your emails. I will be sending you a clip from that so you guys can utilize that as well. Uh, but anyway, if you are in, uh, if you're a creative and you're out there creating new content, and let's say you're doing a podcast, let's say you're doing commercials, let's say you're doing short films, one of the hardest things to find is great music. And great music at the budget that you're given, right? Because so often you're more focused on front-loading with cameras that you're shooting on and what lenses you're using and camera packages. You guys need to learn to get away from that. But um, that you don't really think about the back end. Post-production suffers for that. And music is the last thing that you think about always, right? Head on over to Jambox. They have amazing music, amazing deals, um, and uh, it will change the way your clients see your work. It'll change the way you see your work, the way you, you plan your work. Just go over there now and sort through their library. Listen to the quality of stuff that these guys put out, um, and then check out their, their uh, subscription plans. Good plans. If you are just a creator, just if you are a creator, let's say you do uh, YouTube, podcasts, student stuff, they have an unlimited creator account for $9.99 a month, you get a 30-day free trial. Uh, you'll get it even cheaper if you use our promo code, ILWP, on checkout. Um, but this will get you full access to all music, unlimited downloads that you can use for social media, web streaming, personal student projects, and film festivals. Great deal. Nine bucks a month, dude. Uh, I mean, literally, at the price that you would spend for one piece of music, you have it for a whole year and unlimited music. Um, if you're doing commercials, like for clients that do digital ads, weddings, corporate, nonprofits, uh, $19.99 a month, seven-day free trial, everything from the creator plan, plus access to all sound effects. Your sound effects library is great. And stems for the music and songs. So you can actually break the songs down into their stems. Just listen to the bass beats, the drum beats, no vocals. You can actually remix the songs to fit your edit, which I do consistently. Um, you can use this stuff for paid advertising, corporate, business, weddings, live events, etc. cetera. $19.99 a month, even cheaper if you use our promo code ILWP. You get 20% off of that. If you're a student and you're like, hey, man, I'm learning. I don't have a shitload of cash, but I'm learning. Use their student plan, 6 bucks a month, and that gives you full access to all music, sound effects, unlimited down downloads. And you can use this for student projects and film festivals, web streaming, and social media channels. Okay, not bad. Six bucks a month. And maybe you're tired of subscriptions and you just want to do a specific song licensing. They start at $19.99 and go up based upon what you're using it for. And you get it even cheaper if you use our promo code ILWP. You get 20% off. And that promo code is only good until the end of April this year, 2022. Okay, do it now. I'm telling you, do it now. If you want to support the show, do it now. Okay? Jambox.io. Also supporting the show, as always, our gold membership of sponsors, our elite group, uh, Puget Systems. If you're in the marketplace uh, to build a new computer, maybe you work at a company like Bose and you guys have an internal editing department, you guys have an internal media department, and it's time to upgrade your systems. Well, don't just go spend all that money on the unboxing experience from a Mac or an Apple computer. PCs are the way to go. They're upgradable, they're cheaper, they're focused. You can actually focus 
the hardware in a PC to work for the software you need, instead of just buying a generic machine that generally works for all software. Believe it or not, specific hardware makes specific programs run better and faster, especially if you're in the sound world. Okay? So head on over to PugetSystems.com. These guys build custom-built PCs, custom-built to your needs. And when you talk to them, you talk to a consultant. Can you imagine? You talk to a consultant, and they walk you through the process. They want to hear about what it is that you do. They want to hear about the kind of work that your company edits, and they will help you put together computers that work at an affordable price, at a price point that you can start making money on your gear, right? You're not forever in debt until the next software update renders your hardware useless with other companies. You know what I mean? PugetSystems.com. Check them out. It's a great resource for those of you who build PCs. These guys benchmark test all hardware. They run it against the new software that's on the market. They understand the updates and how it affects your hardware. And they post all this stuff on their website. So even if you just go follow the link in the description of my bio, because it's a trackable link, I think. Yep. And follow that link and then just go there and check out their resources, man. I'm telling you, it's going to change the way you think about building computers. It's going to change the way you think about purchasing computers. It's also going to get you in the position where you can make money on your gear. All right. PugetSystems.com. Check them out. Um, that's it for REITs. Those are the only two that I'm going to do this, this episode. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, there's a big group of you that have been following the show. Let me pull these numbers up now. As we're talking, stand by. Stats. What is happening? Oh, shoot. We're doing really good. We're doing really good right now. Oh, let's see. All-time numbers. Isn't it great listening to Mike Surf the Internet? All-time numbers. Top countries. Okay, who's hitting us up? Of course, we're repped by hometown, United States, big-time rep. Second, Canada. A lot of you folks in Canada are listening to the show. Big group of you came on this month. I don't know why, but you're here. Third in a row, United Kingdom, the UK. Big shout out to you guys. Uh, fourth, Australia. Uh, Mad Max land. You guys are killing it. Uh, fifth, Germany. Sixth, Sweden. Seven, the Netherlands. Eight, Mexico. Hey, down there in Mexico. I didn't realize until I came here how many uh, LA productions get down to Mexico City. Fascinating. Nine, Czech Republic. And 10 is Switzerland. Wow. You guys, we see you. I hear you. Write to me on Instagram, at Mike Petchy. I don't know how you found the show, but a big group of you did. So if you're listening to it, write to me on Instagram, at Mike Petchy. Tell me how you found the show. Give me a shout out. Uh, let me know what your film business is doing in the country that you're from. How is it? All right, that's it. Let's get back into it with Nicole and Fran.
I think I remember our first meeting because I was there, you were there, Margie was there. We were talking about mm -hmm. how to uh, record this stuff. And <clears throat> especially at that time, I was always, <laughs> I was always overzealous. So like uh, in my head, I'm like, how do I do this and make this look like music videos? And, and I had spent enough, mm -hmm. enough time recording artists and like hanging out with artists and doing documentaries and following people around. And I know that uh, you're usually thrust into these tiny rooms. You really have no control over the lighting and the vibe and the scene. And then there's a bunch of logistical things that we would have to deal with. Like if I was to do, a, for me, the hard part was like, how do I do a music video level quality recording? Because I, I mean, I don't mind talking trash on the other one. I've seen a lot of the other uh, live recording sessions from other companies or other brands out there because everybody mm -hmm. was doing one or another and it just looked you know it, it was barely above like a television recording of, of musicians doing something it, it just lacked the emotional the visual emotional context that the music had it just didn't seem to to line up and when i talked to margie and we were pitching and i said to her like we got a we got to figure out a way that i could take all of the resources that I would normally use for a music video and try to put them into this scenario, but the puzzle's really difficult. A, the, sure, the, mm -hmm. ro the room is small, but B, when I do a normal music video, I'm shooting for about 12 hours and we're doing like multiple takes and setups. I mean, the poor drummer's playing tracks probably 35 times in the course of a day at full speed. So it's like that, I didn't want the actual craft of making a music video to impede with what you guys were ultimately doing there, which was recording great songs and variations of songs with really great artists and making sure that it sounded it at the level that Bose needed it to be being Bose, of course. Yeah. You know? It's, yeah. That was the real challenge for you is that the recording came first yes. and video came second. Yes. So we had like, for example, we had the drummer isolated in a booth. How do you, Shoot capture the drummer in a room by himself <laughs> <laughs> in context of the rest of the band. I know. Yeah. I, I'm sure we had so many meetings, pre-production meetings in that space. And I'm sure you're ready to strangle every one of us. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but look, I'll be hundred percent honest about it. I thought that, that was what was fascinating about this job. And when I look back on this project, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is how we all came together and essentially took a Rubik's cube and solved it because mm -hmm. th yeah. there was yeah. so, so many variables, variables on, on your end frame, because you're trying to record, <laughs> you're trying to record yeah. a band in a space with, uh, four or five camera operators in the same room. Uh, we're dealing with, if there's noise coming from light units that we're using, we're dealing with like mm -hmm. noise and, and, yeah. uh, stuff that's coming from cables that we're using. It was a thing for you too, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, first and foremost, the music we wanted, we wanted the music to be able to come through without any, uh, anything getting in the way. Right. So, uh, to have those things and, and, you know, we obviously wanted, you know, the equipment uh, on the, the shoot side of it to be, uh, to be quiet enough, you know? So, yeah. uh, so it was a, ch it was a challenge, but, you know, I've also, you know, you know, by the time we were doing this, I'd been put in so many different situations and, 
this was a good situation where I had a great space. It might not have been huge, but I had great microphones, yeah. great equipment. Yeah. I knew how to work with people. I mean, it wasn't scary for me at all. I just knew it would be a lot of work, but in the end it would be so worth it. And, and, and I think we proved that and, and boy, uh, you know, uh, the challenges of, of, uh, of multiple cameramen in the, in the, <laughs> in the room and everything like that. It wasn't really my problem because everybody was so great and respectful and, and, and they, you know, it, it was my you know, problem, there was friend. A, it was my problem. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was your problem <laughs> and we trusted you to deal with it and you did. So it was great. It was great. And, uh, it didn't, it didn't end up being a, it didn't seem difficult to me. You know Good. what I mean? Good. Well, I mean, once we figured out the formula, because I remember the first one we did, which was, um, who was that? That was Santa Bose. Santa Bose, yeah. And th that one, I came into it, and I think we were timidly putting our toes in the water. And I don't remember if that was a suggestion from the production company or whatnot, but I was like, all right, how do we do this? Maybe we'll just, because we wanted to come up with the visual gimmick. And I'm like, ah, oh, we'll do this bare bulb, light bulb thing, and we'll, hi we'll hang these light bulbs and we'll do all that. And um, it went against sort of my gut where I'm like, mm, I'm also filming women and they need, the lighting needs to be good. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's like a yeah. specific set of rules for how, how to do <laughs> cosmetic lighting correctly. And so we ended up going through that process and we learned how, I think that first one came out great, but we learned, um, we spent more time just learning the, the Rubik's cube of two things. One, had a fit i forget how many musicians she had playing with her was it like three i can't remember yeah she had uh piano so, bass and drums and her singing yeah so and this is yeah this, it was really simple it's a small room it's about the size of a living room in your home and so you have three or four musicians that are playing things and sometimes we would have someone with a piano or a large like something that would take up a lot of space and then from my angle of things, I wanted to make sure that the piece didn't feel like a live switched event. I wanted to make sure it didn't feel like a broadcast piece. And the trick with music videos is coverage. It's, it's making sure that you get as many angles as you possibly can. So the conversation that we would have was, how many times are you going to record them doing the song to get the elements that you need to engineer the track correctly? And right. typically that came to what? Like three times, maybe four times if we were lucky. Yeah, I think the most we ever did with takes with any of these was like six takes on one, any one song, but that was pretty rare. And usually yeah. it was either take two or three that we took as our audio take, you know, with very, you know, we did do some edits, uh, but never any individual tracks. You know, it was always just, okay, I'm going to take, uh, you know, the four bars before the second chorus sure uh you know from this take and but the main take is going to be take three or something like that you know and and that's how we did it and um well then that yeah, becomes so, a puzzle that becomes a puzzle for us so then we sit there right. capturing it and we're like all right i need to change in between each take i need to make sure that all three four five cameras sometimes change positions and that was what we did the first time so i'm like i want yeah, to get as many it, variations as we possibly can get remember yeah and i remember i remember saying to you uh my want for i wanted one camera to stay the same i always yes. wanted yes i wanted that lead vocalist camera to not change that you always had that one shot yep 
that was not going to change on all the different audio takes we took that way you know there was some there was something that 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 stayed consistent throughout all the takes in that way yeah and also from a technical standpoint just in case you you, you know god forbid you had to take a line from another take and squeeze it into that take if we're fully watching uh, the footage from that one take, she'll she'll go out of sync, or or he'll go out of sync because yeah. you've slipped something around, and we learned that pretty quickly too. Where it's like there needs to be a master shot that stays the master shot, which ended up being everything that we built around. So at that point, it was yeah. like, okay, let's make sure that the master shot looks great. Now I know those of you listening that work in the industry, you're like, okay, but this is typical. This is what you do on all of it. Yeah, it's not typical. Because what we then had to decide after we did Senabuse, it came out great, but I was like, the lighting needs to be better. And we agreed on that too, Nicole. Like the lighting needed to be better. The, the visual yeah. needed to be better. And so at that point, how do I light a space that we can literally shoot 360 in? Uh, because in between each one of these takes, uh, the band and you guys would maybe have the patience for us to reposition for about 15 minutes but I couldn't yeah. relight the space. And if I'm crammed into a living room with four or five musicians and camera operators that are shooting on all these different angles, how do I not see the other camera operators? How do I not see the light stands? How do we not see these things? Um, that was the puzzle. And not to mention the fact that the ceilings were standard height uh, without any rigging materials on the ceilings. Um, yeah, they also had dampening material on them, like yes. they had foam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was quite. And, and the all challenge. the time, I'm thinking, you know, as a as someone who's in, you know, I'm, the most important thing to me was the sound and the performance. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, we just had a great take two. If I want to get to a take three, Mike, I don't want you taking 25 yes, minutes. Yes, yes. You know, I want the musicians to get right back to it and to be focused on what they do, and so that the next take is an improvement, you know? And, uh, so yeah, that, that was another challenging part of all that for sure, because, you know, it wasn't it, it, unlike a music video, we were keep, you know, we were looking for that magic take. We, yeah. we wanted that performance first, you know, and, yeah. uh, and everything got built around that. Well, yeah. and that's the, for those directors listening to the show, that's the ego check that you have to give yourself. You, and this is something, and I, you may be able to back me up on this, Nicole. This is something that when you're hired as a commercial director, you have to remind yourself that you're a piece of the equation. And you have to yes. do the same thing that Fran is able to do, which is get that bird's eye view and look at the puzzle and sit there and go, okay, this isn't about ego. This isn't about... Um, you know, legacy or any of this stuff. It's not like you're going to, they're going to be lowering you in the grave somewhere and someone's going to go, Bo's better sound sessions. You know what I mean? Like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, as, as, a, yeah. as a director, that's not what you should be thinking about. And so instantly I was like, all right, got it. This is about recording. This is about that. But also let's accept this challenge and go, well, yeah, but also how the fuck can we do this lighting stuff. And I remember I reached out, I love him to pieces. Uh, Ruben, Ruben over, he was over at um, uh, Red Sky Studios. And he was yeah. one of the head, one of the leaders of this LED lighting stuff. He had just done uh, the Ghostbusters movie that was done in Boston at that time where they rigged uh, LED lights to drones to be the ghosts that were flying around folks. And 
Um, and I went to him at the space and I said, dude, this is the challenge. This is how high the ceilings are. And he's like, oh man, you don't have room for rigging. I said, yeah, I can't rig on them. And we can't have stands around because we're going to see the stands and we're moving cameras and I'm not going to have time to move that. I said, so, uh, you know, what do you think? And he's like, well, I think I can build you these lightweight LED panels that we can literally put on, on foam core. And, uh, then you can just, you can paper tape them to the ceiling. And that's how heavy, like yeah. it would still retain that weight. And I was like, whoa, really? And, and that really changed everything for us because then I could put what I needed to put for a lot of the uh, female musicians that came in is I needed that high above frontal soft source, slightly overexposed lighting, which would help with cosmetics or, or give that look that we're so used to seeing in music videos. Um, and, uh, yeah. it was really that that changed the game for us was with, with those panels. That we yeah. Designed. With Senabu, we had it, we, like, that was a really, she was great. I mean, she's great to begin with, but she's great to work with as our start because she's essentially a solo artist. Yeah. She has a couple of background musicians, but to put the focus just on her, you could do some really good moody lighting. I mean, she's got such a beautiful, deep, soulful voice that yeah. you kind of wanted that aesthetic anyway. Um, so to have her be the first out of the gate in that studio setting, we were able to do it, you know, like you just described, but by the time, by the time we got some of the groups that had more members who had equity in the group, yes. like Lake Street Dive and Lucius, you know, very strong female forward bands, but, um, their bit, their group mates also have that equal weighting and you need to be able to give them the same time and attention. Yeah. Having that even lighting. Yeah. That was a super big challenge. You couldn't just do those conventional, you know, incandescent lights or Edison bulbs. You had to come up with some more film technique yeah. to evenly light the space, but then also have those mood pieces and those mood actions. And I think I, I personally love the Edison ball. I know it's so overused now, but back when we were doing it, it just was, it gave <laughs> the space such great atmosphere. Yeah. And we actually, we did bring an atmosphere too. Do we have smoke machines at some point? Well, too? that was the, that, that, that was the other <laughs> thing. The other thing was that the, the room was white. <laughs> so it was this, yeah. it was mm -hmm. just, just this white room. And if you're a photographer, you just sort of look at the space and you go, oh shit, like what, what like light's going to bounce everywhere, stuff's going to bounce all over the spot. And I pushed really hard for us to have a hazer because uh, mm -hmm. I knew, I mean, with, with all my movies and stuff, I, there's always a joke, more haze, because I'm always running so much haze and volumetrics <laughs> in the space because I can trap in haze, I can trap color. So I can trap yeah. Uh, like all this light in the atmosphere. So instead of having an artist singing up against a white wall, if I pull them off that wall just enough, and if I solo out their key light, so their key light isn't affecting the background at all, it's just specifically affecting them and their face, then I can do all sorts of really great color that's captured in the volumetrics of the haze. Um, and that was our next trick was mounting mm -hmm. along the outsides of the studio uh park hands we eventually ended up with some led stuff but mounting these park hands and lights that were acting as backlights side lights sometimes when we swapped the angles around and then the light positioning became really important because i would have to pre-go through and say all right so the artist is going to stand here this is our frontal close-up when they go into take two i want a side angle so take two side angle i want to make sure that that 
right-hand light is acting more as a backlight, but it can't be too sidey on the frontal light. And so you're planning out the positions of the lights knowing that in 10 minutes, you're going to have to just move cameras. And in that 10 minute time, it was like pulling cables, getting tripods, <laughs> literally mm-hmm. stacking yeah. cameramen on top of each other. Um, to and be we able were to locking every, every camera with time codes too. So yes. we'd re- be rejamming everything yeah. and uh, yes. doing that as well. Yep. Yes. It was a puzzle, man. And the, the first couple of gigs that we did, it was stressful. It was fun, stressful. But then once we got yeah. into, I think Lucius was the, the game changer, at least for us visually. Once we did yeah. Lucius, we were like, okay, yeah. we got this. We got this. We, we started changing it a little bit with Lake Street Dive, and we started playing with color more. Yep. Because they, at that time, had just come out with their album Side Pony, which had all this beautiful on the uh, uh, album cover art had these like blues and pinks and yellows. And so we made a conscious decision to incorporate that le- that coloring into the lighting design. So we started playing with lighting with them. But yeah, by the time we got to Lucius, who's got this like fantastic, they've got this beautiful, like weird Art deco twin thing happening. So <laughs> yeah. we really wanted to get funky with them. And we actually, I think we worked with them directly on their lighting design yes, we to did. make sure that it worked with their style. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we did. It was fun. It was fun. And then once we, once we got that cracked, once I started to figure out the technical stuff and then I was getting enough footage for the edit. Um, and then, you know, cause we went through a lot of headaches through the edit of like, you know, as you said, friend, make sure you get the same frontal shot and then like dealing with um, whether or not, uh, we were in sync, and then we had to swap our cameras yeah. to cameras that could actually take jam time code at the time. So uh, we were, you know, pushing our budget a bit to get our cameras in there that we were able to sync that way. Um, but it was around Lucius that it that it all changed. I thought, um, mm-hmm. and then it started to become yeah. fun. It really started to become fun at that point because the formula was. Yeah, there. I don't know. For me, it was fun. It was fun. The whole thing was fun. I thought, you know, because because <laughs> you know, I don't. I'm not, I don't know anything about the lighting and all that and a little bit about the cameras and everything. But even for me, the the first one, Senebuse, I mean, my hope was that the look could be as elegant as the sound, you know? And, and, um, and she's this beautiful, you know, black woman who, who has this great, wonderful voice, and it's the, in in the context with the piano and the bass that they, the way they were doing it, uh, the arrangement, it it just made her sound so elegant and true. Yeah, and and you know I, I you know, I think that the video the the video did that as well. Even though I know we made improvements as sure. we went, sure. we still managed that. You know, with, with the fog and all that, like you said. But it was, it was you know. It really supported the music in that way. Yeah. And, you know, bear with me. I, I, I tend to be a perfectionist about these things. So when, yeah. I, when I go back on it, I, you know, I'm just sort of letting the audience, because when you look at these things, you really don't think about the specifics behind them. And so folks will watch these things and go, okay, cool. So you just brought in a couple of cameras and you shot them. And this is like a one take. And then that, that's what it is. It's like, no, 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 no. And the, the thing that's so fascinating about this project is the Rubik's Cube element of it. I think that's the thing that I'm most proud of. Like anytime I talk about this gig, if I'm talking to folks that want to hire me to do something else, I'm like, yeah, well, there was this thing we did at Bose. And the, the, the thing that was so great about it was 
uh, the team figured out how to solve this this issue. And the issue ultimately was the space in the the room was the you know integrating uh, recording a track and recording a music video at the same time. Um, obviously dealing with whatever budgetary restrictions that we ended up going through, and then um, making sure that the the artists th that what we were producing like you said, represented the music and represented the artists to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, it was, you know, the challenge on my end for audio was, you know, you know, you know, having the video when, when somebody could experience both the music and the video together, it, 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 it took some of the pressure off of audio because these people were pros and they were engaging and their music was great and they were just wonderful to watch in the first place. And, uh, you know, but there are times when we use this content in an audio only situation and, and, you know, the, the recordings had to be, had to be able to compete with these ultra high produced things out in the world because that's what they were going on those displays and stores that had those types right. of songs on it as well. Right. So, so it was, you know, the performance, you know, most, you know, from my point of view for the music the hard work went into finding the finding the right people to do these shoots with because you know they were you know to get someone to come in and just perform the way these some of these people performed is 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 not the way every band is you know these people were great you know and so when you start with greatness it's a lot easier to keep that going of course you got the pressure not to you know fuck it up but we you know yeah. We, we, you know, so there was, there was, there was that, but we had a, a you know, in my mind, we, we really had a, a, a good thing going where, where we found great people to, to perform. And then all we had to do was, was make it continue, continue the greatness. Well, that was a big part of the, I, I mean, we should probably talk a little bit about that. That was a big part of what you guys were doing there was finding these acts and finding the people that. Uh, felt like they fit into this thing, but also were sort of at the cutting edge of, of what was coming out at that time, right? Yeah, totally. I mentioned that a, the little bit at the beginning of supporting the artists, and um, yeah, it's totally true. Like, part of it, what we were looking for wasn't what Fran had just mentioned about, you know, their sound and the, the quality that comes with that to demonstrate our products and the fullness and richness of that. But also, um, you know, what is the band got going on? And, you know, we were hoping to catch a lot of these artists in their rise and to support them, um, in that endeavor. Yeah. Uh, like I said, with, with like shoot dive, we, we brought them in as their album side pony was coming out um, Lucius, I believe, was on tour. They had just did they had just won an award. They were at an award show right before mm -hmm, coming yeah. out to Boston, record with us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we uh, our, I think our last Better Sound session actually was with Noah Kahan, just as he was breaking. So, um, you know, like artist support for at least us creative. I mean, I'm not just saying from the creative side, I think from the brand side too, we would say that like, it's a huge deal. Like we believe yeah. in better sound. And so yeah. there's a great to, story. Like, that's part of it. I don't yeah. know if you know this, Nicole, but there's a great story that Michelle Fine, who, who's one of our uh, legal people who helps do the legal work on the side to get all these deals done with the band and everything. Mm -hmm. But she got a letter 
from I forget which band it was, but a mother from one of the bands that said that because of the money that the band had earned doing the Bose Better Sound session, she was able to get her minivan back home. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And the band was, could the was, band could buy a van now. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Beat Connection. I think that was Beat yeah. Connection. Yeah, I remember hearing something like that. Yes. <laughs> but that's so cool. I mean, it was that's great that you guys were helping that. that. You know? Yeah, and I mean, it wasn't. You know, obviously, we wanted great material to to support our brand, the Bose brand, and everything. But when we can support the bands and all that, it's just just a wonderful thing too. You know. Well, and it you know to speak against you know the cynical tone, it never felt like like uh, it was like a company that was like taking advantage of the artists. It ne- it never did for me. Like coming into it, I always felt like. This was a collaborative thing. And there was a sense of prestige, honestly, that because that studio was so nice. I remember the band coming in and being like, whoa, you know what I mean? Like any band that we worked with yeah. was just like, whoa, this is nice. And it was an opportunity for these musicians to just honestly just flex a little bit and and come in and and create. And you created such a great environment for them recording, Fran. I remember observing how you would get takes out of these folks and how you would coax what you needed out of them. But at the same time, they felt like they were pretty much in control of everything that they were putting out there. Um, it, it felt safe. It felt like a safe place for these people to create and do stuff. Yeah, it was, you know, and it's weird because, you know, c- coming up in the business, it was, it was, you know, when you worked at a studio and you were working on records, that record was, you know, the band they might've been feeling pressure to do well in those situations, but it was a different type of thing. But, you know, I was as a recording engineer working for Bose, it was a, it was a little bit of a different vibe for the artists coming in where it's like, you know, but I, and so I wanted to make sure they knew that, you know, I was about them and I was about the music and, and looking, you know, I wanted them to know that if their best interests were met, then Bose's best interests were met musically, yeah. you know, and, and that, and, and if, if they, if I could get them to that understanding quickly, then, then we just, you know, we were going to have a great time recording and making something wonderful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also forgot about the element that we also were doing. We were doing interviews. At the, geez, we were doing so much yeah. that day. Yeah. We were also doing interviews, <laughs> which yeah. we were doing yes. during like the pre-rig day. I think we eventually got to the point where we were doing interviews during a pre-rig day for some of it, but it was pretty yeah. intense. It was pretty intense, the amount of stuff that we were shooting. Yeah, it was like we had a certain amount of time with the band. It was usually like eight hours or so. Sometimes it was even less than that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we had a pre-rig day, like you said, where we would set up the room and then the band would come in and set up their gear and do their sound checks. And then, yeah, then we had shoot day and we would record as much as hum- humanly possible. Yeah. We interviews, uh, photography, yep. uh, behind the scenes, B roll, like, Oh, yeah. And periscope like this is back when periscope was a yeah. thing and we were trying to do, like oh, yeah. all the live so like we were like you like we were like a clown car in some instances trying to squeeze all the tech and the people oh and then on uh, some of them we did 360 audio and video That's we were right. recording oh right um spatial audio that. yes and we so were. we would have to make time for that yeah 
Yeah, there was some. It was usually two songs for the for the main versions of what we were doing. But then sometimes we would have a third song that was a three sixty or or something that we were going to do uh, an ambisonic recording or a binaural yeah binaural recording of uh, at the same time. So you know, and and that's it. That's the other thing that's great about Bose is we were you know you know we want to keep learning what's gonna you know, what's going to turn people on sonically, you know? So it's like, we, you know, we're always pushing that. We want to, we want to, we want to do what's new and we want to capture mm-hmm. things with in new methods and try it out. So, some of that stuff never saw any use, but some of it did at least internally and uh, it helped us learn uh, so we can, so we could start, you know, new chapters in it, bows, uh, for, uh, for technology driven products even. Yeah, dude. I mean the binaural stuff that we were doing, I was, I was completely fascinated. A lot of that stuff I, I even want to use in my movie stuff. I was, I remember I was just completely fascinated with like this, it was like a dummy that was set up and then the, the yeah, I have a KE 100 Neumann dummy head, which yeah. is, you know, like an $8,000 microphone that, it's a head with microphones in the ears with ultra realistic rubberized ears, you know? And, uh, so yeah, that's become my best friend. Uh, you know, this, what's this dummy head? What does that mean? (laughs) Uh, Become your best friend during COVID? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can explain what I mean by that. We, I've been doing, you know, an outfit on, we've been doing, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have put winter hats on this thing. There's a sci-fi movie in there somewhere. Uh, yeah, well, during, movie in there. during COVID, we had to move out of the offices, which meant I had to move out of my studio space and at work. And, and I, I kicked all the cars out of my garage and I turned my garage into this laboratory control room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and um, and we started doing these virtual online demonstrations for sound bars and things where I was recording re-recording demonstration materials with a binaural head so when i say the binaural heads become my best friend i me and the binaural head spent a lot of time together during uh covid you know recording you know re-recording product in here so we so we could try to give people an idea of of uh what their products might sound in 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 a medium-sized living room which is you know, maybe my garage might be slightly bigger than a medium-sized living room, but it's it's uh sounds a lot like a medium-sized living room. So yeah, it's been yeah. great. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, no, it was it was crazy when you think about. And then I had fun doing the interviews because I was doing the interviews with the folks, and and it was like mm-hmm. a, it was a fun flex to sort of how do I take my head out of like running through that room and setting up all the stuff and, and shooting all this stuff to sitting down and being like, okay, let me get to know who you are. Um, because then what we did is we used the interview segments as an intro before we got into, and, and sort of like a, uh-huh. uh, stitched in between each of the performances, which came out pretty good, which really did. Oh, it came out great. And what I love about the yeah. interview section is like, yeah, you know, in the end they weren't designed to really give you a ton of information about the band or anything like that, but it was, it was a way to set the mood about maybe it was like four, you know, some of them were no more than like four or five lines yeah. that set the mood for what the music was going to be coming up in a, in a sense, you know, like give you an idea of what they were like to get you ready for the music, you know, it was in, and I love the way those interviews turned out for that. Oh, well, thanks, man. I, and it's surprisingly, it was, 
almost prepped for me doing the show, which is funny. Um, because <laughs> at, at that point it was, it was less, because once again, I'm always examining what everybody else does. And I'm like, eh, I don't want these to be like lame interviews. You know what I mean? Like, you know, how was life on the tour mm -hmm. bus? You know, and like, what <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of what kind of guitar strings do you use? You know, like any of that. Stuff. What music you've been listening to? Yeah, lately. yeah. <laughs> and of course, you have those dumb questions where you feel like an idiot reading them. You're like, okay. But the, at the end of the day, uh, we I think we collectively just sort of uh, found the the soul, and we tried to find the, at least the soul of that moment, and trying to yeah. find like how they were feeling because it was an exciting thing for a lot of these folks. I mean, they're getting they're getting treated like royalty and they're getting walked into the the biggest, you know, the biggest audio company in the planet. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Bose is Bose. Bose has always been known as prestige. I mean, I remember being a kid and the, like Bose was always expensive. It was like Bose, you know? Um, and so <laughs> these musicians are getting walked in and, and, and put through our, our meat grinder as far as like the content that we're putting together. But, um, I, they always felt very gracious and they always felt very excited to be there, especially when we were interviewing them and talking to them. And I don't think, yeah. I don't think there was any egos. I don't think it specifically, there was an ego no. that we had to deal with. Yeah. There was no, I don't remember any problems in that way in it at all. Yeah. Which is, which is. No, no, I, I think we ever did. Yeah. It's rare. Believe me, doing as many music videos and many things as <laughs> right. we've done. It's, it's very rare. And, and, uh, these days, uh, Gina has sort of taken that mantle on and she's been doing a lot of stuff. She worked with like Little Nas X and she just worked with a bunch of different folks. And I'm not saying any specifics, but it's interesting to see the egos, especially the egos that are out here in Los Angeles for stuff. So we were very fortunate uh, mm -hmm. that we had great acts that we were coming in and out of there for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I would say the only real, like, I, I wouldn't even call it ego, but some of the bands showed up with their own, like, engineers. And of course, they showed up with managers and stuff like that, too. But, you know, I think we embraced all that. It's like, great, you have a certain sound, you have a certain way that, you know, you're making your music. Come on in. You know, we're all, yeah. we're all here to make something fantastic. So, Let's yeah. all work together on that. Yeah, I would. I would. And if they brought their own engineer, I'd have them come in and sit with me. I'd tell them everything I was doing and show them what I was doing. And most of the time, I'm like, great, you know, do it. And, and maybe they'd have a comment or two. And you just, you just take that and 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 you help, you know, because you, you know you're representing their their brand with the, you know, and making sure that you're doing that well for what they want as well. So as long as they felt like they were being attended to uh, in in that way then we didn't run into any issues you know well, there it is again man that you understanding the bigger picture and, and knowing that that was part of it and whenever i see that stuff happen on any of the sheets that we do if someone brings in a consultant or someone brings something in it's just because the artist is nervous ultimately like there's some sort of sense of yeah. nervousness where it's just like settle my nerves and just come with me and make sure that you know everything's okay you know um, yeah i i get that it makes sense um uh, yeah, but you had mentioned something earlier, Mike, about like directors and, and like, you know, ego, like, you know, it's and not really understanding the center of the brand or whatever. And I think as a producer for a brand, like that's a big deal to me that somebody can have that flexibility and be like, yeah, sure. No problem. Come on in. Like, we're all here to make something great and not throwing a fit and being like, this is my set and I'm controlling it and I'm going to be this certain way. 
you know, you, you have to be open and flexible to work with different people because it's, you're just not going to get the next job then the next time. Like I'm not going to hire somebody who's going to throw a fit, you know, like if you, if you don't have my best interests in mind, I'm paying you to represent my brand. If you don't have my best interests in mind, then, uh, that's, you're done in my book. (laughs) So like that, and I, I afford the people the same respect is my point is like that, like it, it's a no brainer. It's like, okay, great. You have, you know, your needs and priorities, then we're going to do the best that we can to meet those. As long as you are not compromising on our end. Like if somebody was like, I'm going to do it all distorted, then we're like, okay, well, let's just sit down and talk. Cause we can't have, you know, distorted audio coming out of our speakers. But, um, you know, but if they're like, I want to bring my engineer. Sure. Great. Come on in. Yeah. 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 Uh, That reminds me of when we were shooting. (laughs) That reminds me of when we were shooting. And, uh, one of the things that I've learned over the years of being a cinematographer and then being a director is that, uh, I'm always futzing with the image until, until it starts rolling (laughs) until, until the artist Mm -hmm. starts to say something. And, uh, I think, cause it was rare that you guys had a client monitor because there were just so much, there was so many cables, <laughs> so much stuff. And then like yeah. radio frequencies going through yeah. walls and stuff. But I remember we had, I think it was one day we had a client monitor and you came in, remember you came in cause you were looking at the image on the screen and you were like, why does, what are you doing for that image? Do you remember what I was doing? <laughs> But for that camera, I forget now. What were you doing? So oh, because you had that special color monitor, right? Like you were doing color balance. Sure, but we were doing something. Was we, that it? I was constantly trying to make things softer, so I was constantly trying to just drive the focus um, to the artists, and and then sometimes like we would have like a weird background image. So when we started, we were shooting uh with the with the light bulbs and i kind of was looking through the light bulbs and the, so the second time around mm. i'm like we need distortion i want to distort these which is a weird yeah. thing to do for uh a company that is in the business of of selling products like if i was doing this for for like a tv company someone that like samsung or someone and <laughs> i was doing my techniques to make the images not as sharp samsung would be like hey man that's what we're doing is we're selling sharp images and i'm like yeah but sharpness mm-hmm. doesn't really help the artists and so uh <laughs> i was doing these tricks on the screen to soften the artist maybe help with complexion mm-hmm. and you came in the room and you're like what are you doing it looks really great it was me with an empty water bottle <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that ended up being my favorite in-camera effect ever, like the empty water bottle. And it, it just like you see it in the video and it just it's a, a little light refraction. It's like it's just on the edges, you know, it's not too, too over the top, but yeah. it, it just like that blew my mind. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it was just That's holding, great. which it must have looked insane because it was like a like an empty water bottle. And I'm just sort of twisting it, looking for that right. Take to a C stand. Yeah, yes. you had an empty water bottle. Take to a C stand. Yeah, I forgot. I was like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> yeah, but that that ended up becoming our thing that we did. And at that point, I was bringing in yeah. different shapes of glass, and I was bringing in different bulbs, and so on top of. Let me just paint the picture for the audience here. Okay, so we have musicians in the foreground that are singing. We have keyboardists in the background. Sometimes we have a guitarist. Sometimes we have bassists in your living room. 
with all their instruments. And then Fran's got room for his microphone. So he has, to, he has to put the microphones in the right way and make sure that the sound sounds right with those. And the positioning of the artists have to be a certain distance from each other so that the microphones aren't interfering with each other. So that's an important element. <laughs> then uh, we got to pre-rig the room with all of the lights and dimmers. So the floor is like a It's like a spaghetti plate of cables that are all mm -hmm. over the place. <laughs> and, and then... I have to bring in four to five camera operators with tripods, with monitors. So we set those up. Sometimes tripod legs are crossing each other as cameras are being crammed in. And then, and then we're bringing in C-stands with water bottles. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, I mean, not only the microphones, the artists have to hear themselves. Right, All the, the crew members have to listen to what we're doing to a certain extent as well. Yep. And so it was, it was, uh, yeah, there's, and hence the sea of cables on the floor, you know, but <laughs> I think, I think you could probably make this into a board game and call it twister. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just all yeah, of us something just like that combined. It's like a wrestling session. Um, I just love it. I, I, I love talking about it. I love bragging about it. I love the work that we did on this because it could have very easily from my end of things. And there are so many gigs out there that come this way, which is like a corporate company calls you up and says, Hey, we want to, uh, I'm not saying that you guys did, but some corporate companies out there are mm. like, Hey, we want you to come in and be artistic, you know, and here's like a tiny budget and go do your thing. And as a, as a director or as a creator, you sort of look at it and you go, man, my hands are really tied. Let me just phone this in. You know, we'll bring in a couple of cameras. Uh, we'll throw some lights next to the camera and we'll just do one takes and uh, that's it. You know what I mean? And I think I felt the energy from you, Nicole. I felt the energy working with you, Fran, and, and from your department when I went in there, I went, oh, these people are game to do some something weird and something fun. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm happy we did because... I think out of all the work that I was doing at that time period, um, and out of all the work that I've done commercially prior to the the move that I've done out here to Los Angeles, I think it's the Bose stuff is the stuff that I'm most proud of, really. Um, and I, I think it looks awesome. gorgeous, and I think it sounds gorgeous, and I think it's produced well, and it's it, it, it like just all the elements were there, and it's it's kind of a dream, it's kind of the dream client situation for for a job like that you know yeah i i'd say the same because from our end um it's it's a program that we ideated ourselves like we didn't get a brief from a product marketing manager saying create a music series we came up with our own and we pitched it and we got you know buy-in from you know our retail and social teams and we, it, I always say uh, my job as a producer is I'm a creative problem solver. And so I looked at this as the best job ever because it's like, man, how are we going to do this? And so like <laughs> having a collaborator like yourself, Mike, it was just, it was fun. Yeah. That's the best part for me is like, how are we going to solve this problem? And just talking to like-minded individuals who get that same, you know, jolt of energy of trying to figure it figure the puzzle out and uh yeah and it's just like our whole team that we worked with our you know internally between fran and steve and uh craig and brian and like that we had a rotating cast of characters that came in and out from the bow side but 
um, everybody kind of had that same mentality of like, oh, this is a cool problem to have. Yeah. You know, how are we going to make this work? So, yeah. 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 Well, fun. Yeah. And the, the funny thing about it is, and th this is for, because a lot of the folks that listen to the show are in production. Um, the fun, funny part about it was that unlike most corporate jobs, when you usually pitch on a corporate job, it's all about the gear. It's all about, A, it's about the idea, but then when it comes to the way you shoot it and the technical way you shoot it, it's always like, get the most crisp lenses, get the, 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 the hottest new camera on the market, what format is this being shot in, where is this going, should this be 6K, should this be all these different formats, and that's usually what drives, it's usually very technical uh, when I'm dealing with uh, clients like that, and what was fun, yes, our gig was very technical, but the fun stuff came in the 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 Robert Rodriguez style that we were doing it in the you know water bottles and the mm. and like the yeah. experimental lights and th there was a lot of things that we did in that piece that break the rules of how you're supposed to shoot things, especially in a corporate environment. And I think that's what made it from my end of things very exciting because now I'm actually going back to my film school days and I'm going back to reading rebel without a crew from Robert Rodriguez. And I'm mm. going back to those elements and saying like, how do I make this shit look good? I know how to make shit look good yeah. for no money. So how do I do this? Um, and fast forwarding now, as I, we working with larger clients and, uh, you know, we're doing bigger acts and Gina's out here doing stuff in the, in the mu music industry. Uh, a big change for her out here during COVID was that she got uh, B. Miller as a client. Um, and she got B. Miller. She moved out here to uh, California with no with no client connections at all. And she came out and she goes, how are we going to do this? I said, I, I think what you should do is just try to do some free publication work and try to meet these, uh, these artists. Um, and, uh, this gig for a magazine and you guys, I don't know if you know or not, but editorial doesn't pay anything. Editorial is the yeah. worst. Yeah. Like, there's, there's no, there's no money in editorial. And so we had this magazine, uh, ask us if they, if she wanted to do B Miller and it was no money and the magazine was terrible at producing it. They were non-existent producers and, uh, you know, Gina initially had an idea the way that we normally think as creatives where it's like, I'll shoot in a studio and I'll do all this stuff and I'll make all this stuff happen. And that's where she started. And then it just got whittled down where it's like, we don't have money for the studio. We don't have money for that. We don't have money for this. And then it was like, we don't have location. It was the night before. And, and she's like, I I'm at the point where I could cancel it. Um, should I cancel it? Because I'm not getting all these elements that I think that I should have for this job. And I said to her, I'm like, no, fuck it. But what's the worst that's going to happen? And then let's just do the kind of shit that we did on Bose. And she's like, yeah. And mm. I said, yeah, have her come to the house, bring her to the house, and we'll do shit here. Not knowing that COVID was going to become such a massive thing, not knowing that any of that stuff mm. was going to happen. And so when she came here, we did similar setups. We did like these tiny little light setups in the living room. We were doing uh setups in the garage like i literally gina has a picture that she took in chinatown in, in new york that's on a glassy framed image i ended up taking that photograph bringing it onto set putting the reflection of b in that photograph so it looked like she was in chinatown 
in the garage and we we shot all this stuff like really nitty gritty and dirty. And what happened was the artist loved it. The artist loved the connection awesome. that she had with it. And uh, this is important for everybody listening. The, the art, the creation process became yeah. such an important element that they then went on and Disney hired Gina to do seven music videos. A photograph we shot in our driveway ended up on the billboards of Times Square um, because yeah, awesome. we were using the same techniques and stuff that we did with you guys. So, yeah, you know, everybody wants the most, you know, they want the biggest budget, they want the best gear with no limits. But pe what people have to remember, there's a certain amount of creativity that gets born from limitations. Yeah. I mean, when you think about the albums the Beatles did, and, you know, usually they had four tracks and later on they only had eight. You know, it's astounding what they were able to accomplish and the things that they were able to do. And part of it was it was the creativity that was born from the limitations they had, you know, and uh, that's a real thing. You know, but at the end, yeah. it still has to be great, right, Mike? I mean, sure, it's like sure. we used to have a saying: "Was he only as good as your last record?" And I'm sure you guys oh feel the God, same way yeah. about productions. It's torturous, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You haven't you haven't directed in two years? Do you remember how to direct? And you're like, God damn it! Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe me, believe me. Um, completely, dude. But it's also on both fronts. You're, you're also talking to the artist to think that way, but the artist also needs to have a relationship with. A, cu a customer that also understands like, hey, is there a reason why you're shooting this 4K? If this is just going to your phone, why are we doing this 4K? If it's yeah. going to display units yeah. somewhere, then sure, I get that. But 4K is more expensive and these elements are more expensive. And so then what we're doing is we're redirecting our resources towards the technical aspect of things. And what that's going to do is make it, I don't want to say it's making it less creative, but the chances of it being as run and gun and creative are, are kind of limited at that point because you're, you're dumping your resources into like, I need to have the right client monitor. I need to make sure that I have the right camera and the right lenses. And I think that's a mistake, you know? I think a lot yeah, of Yeah, I'm so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> I think a lot of technology, Mike, today is, you know, it's gotten so good. Even the stuff people, even your, what you have in your hand with your phone. I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, what we can do and the resolution and all that. But one thing it allows creatives to do is kick the can down the road for decision making. And that's not always a good thing. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah. know, you know. A lot of times it's better to make the decision up front because then it can it can really if you if you make that commitment, you can really laser focus a project in a certain direction. Yeah. No, you're right, friend. And it, it is that front loading pre-production and testing and and like you can have a, an outlandish idea, just try it out first and and see how that idea plays. And then find your find your inspiration. I mean, dude. We just shot that Robert Pattinson stuff for uh, GQ. We literally we call them yeah. we call them dad cams. We literally shot on high eight tape for that stuff, and it's yeah. be it's become such the rage at this point that on a daily it basis is, yeah. we get like five emails from people going, "What kind of glass are you shooting through?" Like we have <laughs> two bags full of rare glass and and bubbled glass. And, and prisms, <laughs> like th all this stuff. No that, water bottles? 
bottles? Yeah. Where are there's, the water bottles? There's water bottles in there. <laughs> there's water bottles in there. But I mean, all those elements are, you know, they're not being sold to us as creators on the marketplace by these companies that are like, hey, you know, you know, spend uh, $50,000 on a brand new camera. And then all you have to do is push the button. Next thing you know, you're Martin Scorsese. It's, it's not the truth. And, yeah. you know, so, um, but anyway, I, you, like, I, I'm just saying, I, I should probably stop ranting. Uh, the stuff that we did on Bose and the creative energy that we had on Bose, it, you know, still affects the work that we do today. Very much so. That's, That's awesome to hear. I love stories like that. Yeah. 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 Well, this has been fantastic. What are we at? One thirty. We're about ready to wrap it up. Um, let me ask a couple of questions, individual questions of each one of you. So, Nicole, I think you've tackled a little bit of this, but I know that there's a lot of young directors that listen to this show. And the one thing that we don't have is we really don't have insight from the clients. I don't know why we don't seek insight from the clients. Mm. Because most of the shit that we're basing our career paths on are like, I heard a DVD commentary from David Fincher or, you know, I saw this interview and the, like, I'm supposed to have this kind of thing here and there. Um, you hire directors and you hire production companies. Um, what do you look for first and foremost? Oh, boy, that's a that's a tough question because it all depends on the project. And you even mentioned this with like, well... All right, why do we need to shoot on 4K if it's going to live someplace where you don't need that size of resolution? It, it really depends. Like, is it a social project? Is it a TV project? Is it, you know, um, uh, I, I don't even know what. Like, there's so much new technology out there these days that is yet to be untapped. But, um, but yeah, it, it depends a lot about the creative idea and and the need and the budget. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we kind of dance around it, but we have, like... Like I said, we we pitched that idea for Better Sound Sessions. So we had to raise the money. We had not huge budgets. And people might think, oh, Bose, you're a big brand. There's money there. there it really, it, it's all dependent on what we're making. You know, we had nothing on Better Sound Sessions and we made it work. So I think it's a lot of it is dependent on multiple factors. But for me personally, when I'm looking for directors in production companies, I'm probably going to go first to someone I've worked with that I trust. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's not to preclude anybody else, like up and coming directors or young people or like new production companies from getting business with us. But you have to give me something, a reason for me to say, all right, they've got my best interests in mind. Um, if you're coming at my projects, looking at us going, Oh, you're Bose, you've got big money. I can do, I can finally do my art piece. Then <laughs> you, you're coming at it wrong. You know, that's not, you're coming here to make content for me and to make my company look good. You're not here to make you look good. Yeah. If you look good as a byproduct of it, then you, then you're on the right path Then you're going to be a huge success in what you do because that also, that's the ultimate goal. That's like, if you can make me look good and you look good at the same time, then you, you've unlocked the magic. Um, so, so yeah, I, I tend to first go to people I've worked with before that I trust. Um, and if it's something very special that we need, then I'm looking for that person that um, I think is the best creative fit that is going to be able to do it in the time and budget that I have. 
Right. And at so, that point, you're talking about experience doing what it is that you're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if mm-hmm. there's some special, like if the creative idea is like some special technique, if there's, um, you know, we did an NFL spot several years ago where the idea was, uh, it was for noise canceling headphones and there's fans, uh, in the stadium falling through the floor and, like we required a lot, we required a director that had uh, that practical effect experience to be able to make, you know, these trap doors and people were falling through them and did these giant, you know, the trip, the big pillow things that you see stunt people falling into all the time. Um, so that required a director who had that expertise. We're not doing those spots like. <laughs> every that was like a one and done thing you know so i'm not going back to that guy every time going oh make me a trap door right sure so sure, it, sure it depends on it really depends on the creative um yeah because i don't know if that answered your question it, no honestly a hundred percent it does and it, the the honesty in which you're answering that question is exactly why i have you on the show nicole because the i think a lot of folks that are in this business suffer from a couple things. One, they're just, they're, they're not asking the right questions of the right people. Um, and then two, uh, there's a sense of desperation that, that, that happens when Mm. you're a director because, uh, there are so many directors out there. There are so many, uh, content creators out there. The marketplace is very saturated. Um, and Mm -hmm. you can get access. I mean, most people are just finding people on fucking Instagram at this point. You're just sifting through Instagram to look for people. And so, um, we, I was in this point of desperation when I was trying to make money back there in the city where I'm like, uh, I have a very specific style and very specific sense, but that city didn't have enough work for me. It didn't have enough clients that were in that boat. And so then, you know, whether I was dealing with my production company that was repping me or somebody else, it was like, you need to create content that this city's looking for. And so then you end up getting into this rat race of, of, uh, of half-heartedly creating content just to get work, um, which then you then fall into this routine and rhythm of like, all right, so there's a, there's a bunch of carpet commercials <laughs> being shot in the city. Do I need yeah. to go out and shoot spec carpet car- commercials? Like, how do I get these carpet ads? Um, and you, you, you hit this point of realization where you're like, I should be doing what I'm good at. I'm, I should be doing what I'm passionate about doing because that's what's going to get me hired and I should be further studying these things. The unfortunate side effect of it is if if what I'm passionate about, there isn't enough call for that work where you are, yeah. then you got to move. You got to get, you got to get out of there. You know what I mean? And yeah, that's, that's the danger. You, you have to be like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about people who are passionate, but if you're passionate about something so niche, I'm not going to be able to hire you for that because I'm selling headphones, right? Like (laughs) I'm not selling, you know, this abstract thing. Um, you know, I, I've worked with a variety of different directors. I've, I've worked with Academy Award winning directors on commercials and like, to have an Academy Award winning documentarian working with you, it's like mind blowing. I'm like, why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you making that commercial? <laughs> well, it, it's not only does it expand his, you know, capability, but it enables him to do what he loves. Yeah. You know, getting, 
getting a paycheck from from his commercial work enables him to go off and spend years making his documentaries that he's winning Academy Awards for. So, you know, like that's the balance is you can't you can't be so like, yes, be passionate about what you love. I'm not denying that, but be realistic at the same time. (laughs) No, 100 percent. And I think the realism that I was saying is just to understand understand like i think it's a mistake to chase what the customers what you think the customers want as a director yeah, yeah. i I, th- I think that's my point i think it's a mistake to say uh this is really hot right now so i'm gonna learn how to do this because you're chasing trends at that point and if you're yeah yeah and you'll you'll never catch up and if you're uh exactly. a, a true director really comes down to like if you're a narrative director, it comes down to storytelling and understanding storytelling and then also understanding how to collaborate and understanding how to get whatever idea that you have in your head to translate correctly through that fleshy tongue and get into someone else's mouth <laughs> and, and go like, okay, uh, yeah, I kind of get what it is that you, you're asking of me. Um, that's the real skill set. And I think that what I made the mistake of doing for some years is that we got desperate and we were trying to chase trends and we were like, okay, so mm. let's, let me try to make these things. And then you get in this sort of almost Walmart style sort of like aisle of directors where it's just like, now the client can be incredibly specific where it's like, okay, I know you've shot sneakers before, but have you shot red sneakers before? And you're just like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> like, how do I keep up with that? Like, do I got to do another yeah. spec piece? So it's, it's an interesting, yeah. uh, it's an interesting dilemma. Um, and I don't know if I have the answers to it, but it, it's, it's nice no. to hear it from your perspective, Nicole. It really is, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, all right. Well, and then not to make you feel left out, friend. <laughs> no, I mean, I have opinions on that too. I mean, I, I do get to interview directors sometimes for these projects. I, I'm lucky enough to be included sometimes, especially if the shoot has to do with uh, how the visuals are going to support sound. Yep. So that's when I get involved in uh, what what always impresses me about the the directors is they're all, you know, so many creative people out there and they all have great ideas, but the ones that I lean towards are the ones that, you know, they're passionate about what they do and they have all these great ideas, but if there's something you don't want to do, that's their idea, they're willing to let it go. They're willing to go Mm -hmm. another direction and be, they're willing to go another direction and be just as creative in a direction that might not be their choice. You know, and and to me, mm-hmm. that's so important because that's what we're looking for. I mean, you can't, you know, you know, we're not directing a movie mm-hmm. where the director gets, and I don't even know if this happens on a movie if the director gets final say, and and I'm sure they do in some, depending who they are. But but you know, when you're doing commercial work for Bose, I mean, it, it's a slew of people or making any decisions or any brand, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. slew of people making decisions and, and, you know, you know, we, we do want creativity. We want that passion, but we also need to have all of our brand needs met. And of course and the mm-hmm. realization of what those needs are. And, and if, if we can feel like a certain director really gets that, then, then that's the who you lean towards. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great, man. I, it just comes down to, I think a lot of us filmmakers remembering that it isn't just like the golden goose. You know what I mean? You're not just hunting down this place where it's like, yeah. finally, they're going to pay me to, to do. I, 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 I had a, a cynical client say to me once, like, I got a warehouse full of this shit. I got to sell it. And I'm like, ah, right. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> uh, Essentially, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. That's why I'm here. All right, right. You got a warehouse full of this. You got to get it out. Okay, got it, got it. Um, so, yeah, man, I, you, you guys are both correct on that stuff. And, and uh, I hope you young directors and young creators are listening to this. And if you change your perspective on uh, how you tackle your commercial your commercial clients and maybe don't put as much anxiety into it on your on your end yes i know you have bills to pay yes i know you have to try to create some sort of business strategy in this business good luck to you because any business strategy that we seem to create these days is instantly knocked off its pedestal by some app that comes out um but (laughs) you know like you you really if you're in this for the long haul um, you really need to to change your perspective on that. And and working with you guys was such a great learning lesson for me. And and I've been able to work with other clients like Sam Adams and those folks that I, I learned a lot about uh, how to be a commercial director. Um, and uh, I think that uh, if you guys can listen to what we've talked about on the show today, uh, you might have a leg up uh, on getting work. So... Um, this has been great, the both of you. Thank you so much. I, I miss you guys. I wish we were hanging out in person <laughs> and having beers. And, I know. And talking Hopefully we'll get to do another Thank Better you. Sound Sessions, Mike. Oh, I know, man. <laughs> it would be fun to do something. Um, yeah. But yeah, I miss you guys. I, I really was like, I, I, I treat what we did the same way I treat like a lot of the early independent films that I worked on where you're, you're in the trenches with really great people. Um, and I felt that way with you guys. So, uh, without getting too sentimental, uh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Same here. Yeah. I think we feel the same exact way. It was some of the best work I think I've done in my career. So. Well, I appreciate you both. I appreciate you both. And thank you both for being on the show. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. is today's episode ah, i got really nostalgic there at the end um i you know this isn't you know for dramatic effect i really liked those two i really liked everybody that worked on the bose project with me and and i'll just say it you know right now everybody from like gina who was on the shoot our friend heather mcgrath that was doing that uh my buddy and my uh close confidant my assistant for years uh tony fernandez our great friend, I miss him so much, Anthony Jarvis, that worked on that. Um, our entire lighting crew, our entire lighting teams that we had coming in and out of that project. Um, I, I miss you guys, and I miss the team over at Bose and all the folks there that made it happen. Um, and even my old business partner, Ian, who did all that hard work in the edit and put everything together in post-production. Um, it was really a great time for creation it was a great time to make things uh with a company um and uh and get paid to do it and uh that's the goal right 
that's the goal that everybody has. And I know that you're probably at the end of this episode uh, going, uh, well, uh, how do we get work, Mike? What's the trick? What's the secret? How do we do this? How do we get work? I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know how you get work. I barely know how I get work. All I know is this. If you get into a position and you're working for commercials, check your ego. As we said multiple times in the show, check your ego. It is not a film. You're not getting brought in to be the head, to be the leader, to be the auteur. That's not the deal. I've seen so many uh, commercials go down that route at different price levels. I've even seen larger commercials where the director shows up and he's like, this is my vision. This is my shit. Remember, you're working for a company that has a warehouse full of stuff that they need to sell. That's what you're doing. And just because a company is a large company, um, and you know Nicole talks about it at Bose, it doesn't mean that they have an unlimited bank account that they can just reach into at any point in time. A lot of these internal departments have to pitch and have to sell to the larger company, to the larger uh, financial system that is set up in that company to get these projects up and running and to get these projects budget budgeted. We didn't get into specifics on budget. I'm not going to on the Bose thing, but just know that we had to do the first few at a specific price range and then prove A, how well they did, but also B, uh, what more money would do for ease and quality and how it would change things. You have to be flexible with that. You have to be working with your clients with that. You also have to respect your own time. You have to respect your own rates. Set yourself uh, up to be paid for the talent that you're good for. Uh, we're dealing with this right now. We're talking about uh, this dad cam stuff and everything that Gina and I have been working on and Gina's been working on. And now the big push in the market is, how'd you do that? What camera is it? How are you doing that stuff? It's not just the, the, the camera. It's not the technique. It's the entire creative process that brought it to using that technique. That technique can change. That technique can be something completely different. And I know how consumer-based and how literal everybody is. What Instagram filter did you use for that? Like, what program did you edit that in? Where did you get that from? That's how everybody processes this stuff. And that is very short-term thinking. It very much is. So if you're chasing trends, because that's what they are, trends. If you're chasing trends, you'll be chasing them forever. Remember, direct what it is that you know, direct what it is that you're interested in. Keep your mind open to change and to grow and to develop. And I'm saying this to myself as well as to you. Um, and then at the end of the day, they'll come find you. They really will. If you're creating great stuff and innovative stuff and stuff that you're proud of, and if it fits what that brand needs, and that's the reality of it. If you're doing innovative, amazing, strange uh, sneaker photographs, eventually a sneaker company will come find you. Do not expect Bose to come find you for that, but maybe they will. Maybe they will have partnered up with some sort of sneaker company and that'll work. But you can't put that in your business plan, right? The only thing you could do is to continue to create stuff. Be aware. Work on your own brand. Because everything's brand-based, right? Everybody has a brand these days. I don't know. A lot of stuff to think about, I hope. Um, at the end of the day, though, I'm so happy to have known those guys. I'm so happy to have worked with those guys. I would work with them again in a heartbeat. 
and do a project like that again in a heartbeat. Um, and Bose as a company is a great place. It is as interesting and innovative as it sounds from the outside. They're a huge supporter of MIT graduates. Uh, there was this joke that there's like a tunnel system that runs underneath MIT and right into Bose. Um, but uh, that place was a wonderful place to work in. That studio space um, was phenomenal when they had it. I think they've changed things around there, but that's what happens to companies. Things shift, things move. Um, so hopefully maybe in the future we'll do something again. In the meantime, I'll keep my eyes out for other clients and other, uh, other people that I could potentially work with that like my work, respect my work, and see the, the kind of stuff that I do and go, hmm, maybe this will help sell the stuff in that warehouse. <laughs> you know? And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I really feel that way. Because at the end of the day, if someone's going to write me a fat check to do something, that money's going to come from somewhere, right? So as long as you believe in what the business does, as long as you believe in the ethics of those folks that you're working with, good to go, you know? <sighs> That's it. As I said at the beginning of the show, exciting stuff on the way. I'm trying to wrap my head around everything. A lot of changes have happened. Um, but uh, very excited to have the support system that I do and the people around me that believe in me as a director. And uh, there's a lot of new listeners to the show right now. There's a lot of folks that are uh, working in uh, different production companies and, and different places. Uh, those of you, and you know who I'm talking to, I'm happy you're here. Thank you for coming and listening. And maybe you'll get uh, a bit of insight into this end of the world and the, and the stuff that we're into. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. All right, thank you everybody. You know the deal. I will see you next Tuesday.